Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Grant Crowell. He is a videologist and SEO expert. Uh, he's been doing this since the 90s. And uh, we are going to talk to him today about social media compliance. Grant, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. You know, I, I think it's always, when I hear, been doing it since the 90s, I feel like I'm part of a VH1 documentary on where are they now. I know. I, I, have, I, I have these thoughts that my grandchildren are going to be coming to me, and they say, Grandpa, I heard that you used to podcast back in the day. Yeah, we'll be, that'll, that'll be like a big deal, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that'll that'll be like the equivalent of stone tablets for us today. <laughs> well, I think you're probably going to, need to explain to a few people what the heck is a videologist. <laughs> uh, it, it's a term I coined that I have fun with. That if you actually Google that, you'll see the video of myself. And I, I warn people it's a five minute video; it hasn't been edited. But I, I call myself an explorer of the online video universe, where I do like to help people um, reach their audiences, tell their stories, and convert. But um, a good part of it is just explain analogies of, you know, how does it compare to an archaeologist? How does it compare to an evangelist? How does it compare to a scientist? It's kind of like if, if you had to explain to a chimney sweep of the 1890s, what is the Internet? <laughs> and that's where you have to get a little creative. <laughs> so now, how does a guy become a videologist? How, how, did, you get, how, did, how did you get mixed up into this, this deal? Well... If you go, if we talk about, boy, how did I even start with video? Back in my college days when it was on an Amiga video ed- editor for a class where I was more interested in, and boy, we're, we're, we're dating myself. We're talking early 90s people, linear, forget, forget any, any of this, this high-end computer stuff. Uh, I was trying to have fun and play around with some really good ideas, and I happened to uh, get my pieces shown at the University of Hawaii. But I was dealing more with the things that made you go, hmm, because I wasn't the best person in terms of production. Uh, that actually kind of carried on over to the early days of, you know, before we could do 30 frames a second video on the web, web banner marketing. And I happened to be on early and doing web banners while other people were doing high-end flash. I was thinking, you know, do the animated GIFs and make them part of the old search engines because they'll blend in and show and show up um, as a natural part. And I would get as high as 50% clicks and conversions. Now, that actually leads to more in terms of disclosing what's an ad and what's not, but I was being creative with my level of artwork. I also, before that, I joked that, I've been doing social media before there was social media, and this kind of gets to what I was doing in college with, with video stuff. I was an editorial cartoonist for the University of Hawaii and University of Boulder, Colorado, very much involved in free speech issues during the height of political correctness. And video, in those early times, it was a way to communicate the best you could with broadcasting, but also even then, I was looking for ways to engage with an audience. What did I do? Even when I was a college cartoonist and I had to deal with letters to the editor and being on some talk radio shows about things that we don't think much of today but were rather controversial at the time, I was putting up a bulletin board right outside the, the newspaper office and saying to people, what do you think? Write it on here. 
And video, sometimes I'd be able to go on community cable access television. I was always looking at it from a social standpoint of don't let the technology limit us from having a conversation. Always be fun to talk with people on the bus, hang around, being able to say, hey, yeah, check out this thing on um, community cable in Hawaii, and being able to start relationships. I mean, this sounds like the stone ages of social media, but the, the passion was already there. So a videologist is just an extension of my passion, and it comes to how... I am an explorer of the online video universe. And by looking at my, my digital legacy is I've always wanted to share and educate people and ask questions that are more than top five tips about how to get listed in Google and this and that and things that are just marketing gimmicks but actually seem to make more of a connection with somebody as an individual. So I describe a videologist as somebody who's also willing to make connections with other people and video is just what I consider to be one of the best means of communication we have today. Now, you mentioned something about ethics. You know, you said, uh, you know, whether or not it's, it's uh, disclosed as an ad or not as an ad. Is this how you got interested in this subject of social media compliance as well? It, it really is. I mean, in, in early years, there's so much that could be either, inten- either by intention or by accident as misleading. Uh, First, there was what was supporting a lot of this media was loud advertisements, loud banner ads, and then people developed banner blindness. I went the opposite route. I, I said it isn't about trying to do something that shows how creative you think you are, because I was, I was speaking at conferences on banner marketing, and I was saying people, people are already turned up, and you're never going to compete with television or the movies. What you want to do is people already trust the experience, and it was from my search background. I said make the banners blend in with the site. Now, we're talking in the early days. Alta Vista, the, you know, the, the, the search engine that finally saw its last hurrah recently. We're talking Lycos and Hotbot. Uh, we're talking pre-Google days, um, back when Yahoo was also a search engine, and I, did ba- and I did banners for them. And for a short time, Google did as well. And those got really good high click-throughs. Now, on one end, you look at the same way as well as a lot of other people who might feel cheated because they thought it was part of the site. But there are those as long, I would say and argue, if you're giving people relevant content, it was a form of paid advertising as results. Sure enough, sites like, um, like GoTo did it and eventually got, became Overture and eventually got bought out by Yahoo. And then Google AdWords came. So I was on to something. I, it just happened to be in terms of web banners. The, the issue that I would always have is as a consumer, I, would, I, I like to say I have a, one of my superpowers is BS detection, where it, it will not just I will not be able to detect when I see things that are misleading on, advertise, on any type of advertisements. And I'm savvy about that, but I, but I get emotionally charged about it. Uh, I'm one of those people who I think back to, let me date myself, David Horowitz on Fight Back and Don't Let Anybody Rip You Off, that old show on NBC. We talk about consumers getting screwed and how consumers could be smarter consumers. I remember those times, and I remember thinking as a kid, boy, I had so little money, or as a college student, boy, I just got ripped off. And I didn't, and I didn't want to get ripped off. So it made me think that what is people's time worth that I can get enough respect for what I'm doing at the same time being trying to make a living. Um, this is the early days before all the issues we have to deal with compliance, and I thought that was my issue, is disclosure. Because I always thought, you know, people today more than ever, but even back then, a lot of them just want stuff for free. And they're so used to search results for free, directory stuff for free, information for free. Well, how do you sustain that model when people are used to free? Uh, part, and also when people are turned off by ads. Well, the way that's got to happen is when you do a certain type of, I'll call it the ethical content marketing, that, uh, that is one willing to disclose 
what is the the material relationship that keeps this type of content sustainable for those for who is the one producing the content and for those who is the advertiser that i think is how i did it because i always said i'm very much of a free speech guy i'm super passionate about the first amendment but i also want there to be transparency and i thought I got to provide a balance for the two where it hasn't been happening today and people are ignorant about that. Well, we're going to talk about the update to the dot-com disclosure guidelines from the FTC. But before we get into the specifics, let's just talk at a high level about the issue of ethics and disclosure. Obviously, you know, in a print publication, it's really easy to discern the ads from the editorial. Even if they have an, uh, an ad that's designed to be mock editorial, you know, the type style isn't exact. There's usually a little disclosure at the top of the page that says advertisement or sponsored content or paid. And, and, and we uh, you know, are accustomed to being able to understand that paid content is different than editorial content. The editorial content is what we trust. The paid content is what we don't trust uh, as much. And you know, even in the area of like Google search, I talk to people, you know, not everybody knows the difference between pay-per-click results and the organic results. I mean, you know, I'll admit, you know, my wife, even sometimes when I tell her to Google something, she'll say, oh, look, this one's at the top. I'll say, no, 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 honey, you see how that's sort of yellowed out? That's actually a paid one. That's not part of their algorithmic search. That's somebody bought that. And then she's like, oh, I I didn't really know that. And if you look at how light, you know, they, they write sponsored ad in that little box there, um, it's there, but you can barely make it out. What, just at a high level, what responsibility do you think a publisher or a search engine like Google or, or Bing has to provide to the end user to differentiate between ad, ad, advertising and editorial content? Well, Eric, your timing couldn't be better because this was recently an issue covered by the FTC uh, with Google. And what they said was that Google wasn't as conspicuous as it needed to be with its, its basically what are its paid listings. Now, there's two types of paid listings on, on Google. One you'll see on the right, but there's also sponsored listings that you will see up above, and they'll include a little I and a circle that will give a very short description of what that sponsored listing is about. That kind of works on a level of paid inclusion for, well, a combined SEO, but in a paid placement format. Uh, it on the SEO level, it can get kind of tricky with what results show up at the top on straight pay-per-click versus, all right, you're now in a paid inclusion program. Usually those who can afford it are, tend to have very big budgets. But, and it kind of pushes down a lot of the straight organic SEO. Now, what you talked about in your wife, is, there's actually two components involved, awareness and do you care. Uh, what, what hasn't really happened is there's been a few surveys here and there by people in the SEO industry about Doing, doing some kind of cognitive um, approach where you'll just ask a whole bunch of people, did, first, did you notice it? And did it affect your impression of the results you got? Because if your wife was found, okay, you know, these are paid listings. I clicked on them and I found it helpful. The question is, would she, feel by, would she feel misled? Would she feel deceived? And would that affect her opinion of who is providing that experience to her? Would she, would she basically feel like, I can't trust these results anymore? That has never been done on an empirical level, uh, certainly not by the FTC standards, which want to have a wide, wide swatch of people, and organizations in search 
and in social media and advertising don't really don't haven't really combined to do that. And I think part of it is worried that well that will hurt their ability to make money. The search engines as well. If the search engines do it, they keep it to themselves. So there there is a standard I think that Google needs to do a better job. And there have been search marketers who have been protesting and are not doing a better job. One of them is Danny Sullivan at SearchEngineLand.com. And you can Google Danny Sullivan and the FTC, and you can really follow his gripes that he's had with the FTC. And part of this is like looking at if you're a, you're a search marketer that considers yourself an ethical search marketer, you don't want other people pissing in the pool if you're trying to play by the search engine rules and if Google is, or other search engines aren't going after you. So part of it is, do you, want, do you try to bring this to the FTC's attention and Google's attention? You can. FTC is very slow and, and sometimes won't acknowledge it at all, which is a problem. Google does have pages for reporting this, but rarely will you actually ever hear back from somebody, maybe if you happen to go to a conference, which is always a good way of doing it, and you can mention your gripes. These are ways of how you can improve on the level of disclosure for certain instances, but Google is always going to say, and I've interviewed Google, the representatives on this issue themselves, and they'll say what they're doing is done in a clear and conspicuous manner. However, there are no actual studies to back it up, and that's the one thing that's missing across this industry that needs to happen. And I, so we will drill down in the FTC.com um, disclosure guidelines in a second, but first I, I do want to keep it at a high level here. And let's sort of now talk for a minute about sponsored content. Um, Recently at the Digital Impact Conference, which, uh, which I chair in New York, uh, we had a keynote from Steve Rubell, and it's a, a recorded and presented in a previous episode of the podcast. I'll have a link in the show notes. And he talked about how online uh, media are looking to recoup lost advertising dollars through sponsored cons, uh, content, sort of the you know, reinvented advertorial for the web. And uh, with varying degrees of disclosure. Now, um, you and I are both familiar with Mashable. We know that they do a lot of paid sponsored content there. Usually there's a little one sentence at the top that says, you know, or maybe it's at the bottom. I don't even recall off the top of my head. You know, this content was, you know, sponsored by, you know, whatever company paid for it. And um, exactly what, uh, impact they had on the development of the content, who wrote it, what it was about is, is unclear, just that there was a sponsorship relationship of some kind. Um, and then in other, uh, with, with other blogs like BuzzFeed, it's often not even transparent at all. You can't even tell. So what about sponsored content? Should the same disclosure uh, guidelines be applied there as they should in, with someone like Google? Well, I'll tell you my own pers professional opinion, which I just combined the personal and the professional, is, is absolutely. Uh, I, I can give another example from the Huffington Post. On, you know, I have the Huffington Post app, and they will put sponsored content on some articles. And, of course, there's a level of cynicism, so they want to keep it as small as possible, but still following the guidelines so that they don't get sued or make too many people pissed off and who revolt. But when I'll, when I'll open that up, I will just see a name, but it won't, you have to click on the link of the name to find out what's the company. Uh, so this comes down to is, is it clear and conspicuous a sponsorship arrangement? Now, I could argue no by the FTC standards, but the FTC will, um, will, not, will not come right out and say this. Uh, but I would say that's, com that's very common is to do the bare minimum. And 
I, it's not just with Mashable and many other sites because part of the problem is people don't like to have interruptions. But of course, where's the money going to come from? And then you take, you basically uh, capitalize on influence. I mean, it is social currency that you're trading in on a large enough audience. And now because of obviously advertisers see that audience, they insert their stuff there. Yahoo News. I mean, I'm on Yahoo News and we'll see in very small and a very light yellow sponsored. And of course, it's just, you know, pure, Sometimes the content is absolute crap. It's uh, it, it's clearly an ad trying to and looking in the same in the same frame in the same context the same uh, user inter, I'm sorry the same information architecture uh, there's a usability term but the same so that it appears like it's part of Yahoo. Why? Because your trust is with Yahoo, not with the advertiser. That's what's so ironic is I was doing this in the mid to late 1990s with web banners. Now this now this is the model, uh, um, but but. What I have to say with, with a lot of this stuff is that it's not transparent enough. And I have had experiences working as a freelance blogger where I dealt with the same thing. And I brought up these issues with a few places. I mean, I've, I've been a, a freelance contributor to Mashable. I've been a freelance contributor to other places. And this is, this, is the, this is their business model. And they don't want to disclose to the level that consumers want and that other people in the industry want. Um, I think part of it is let's stick our heads in the sand and wait until we get a, um, till the FTC or consumers or our audience tells us stop it or else or finds us. But right now, this is the new business as usual or what I call it business as unusual. All right, let's talk about the, the elephant in the room, the FTC. So recently, the New York Times published a feature about uh, how celebrities are paid for tweets. You probably, you may have seen it, uh, but it basically went on record that uh, a number of celebrities are paid for tweets and do not disclose, they blatantly disrespect the guidelines and do not disclose that they're ads. You know, they, they don't take the three characters and put hashtag AD to tell people that they were paid and there was a, a material connection between who they distributed the information for and themselves. Um, and in the interview, I think it was Bilton, Nick Bilton, I don't remember, I think it was Nick Bilton who wrote it. Um, it wasn't an interview, it was a story, but he, he quoted um, uh, the, the FTC as saying, we have no open cases on record Whereas in, a, in the same exact story, he talked about Miley Cyrus, Kim Kardashian, um, Ashton Kutcher, and a number of other celebrities who are known for taking you know, tens of thousands of dollars for publishing a tweet, and they do nothing about it. Um, then you look also at uh, you know, other areas where there's no disclosure, and I'm thinking like, um, you know, I'm, I'm in L.A., I'm familiar with the entertainment business, in, during award season, the... Uh, um, female uh, celebrities who are nominated and go walk red carpets will be adorned in uh, the latest, uh, you know, couture fashions uh, for no cost whatsoever. And there's no disclosure of that. Now, they'll say who I'm wearing when they're interviewed, but they won't say that they've been given the dress for free. And so the implication is that this is who they've chosen because this is who they like and this is who they've spent their money with. Any disclosure there? No. Yeah. One, one more, just, just, just one more here. Um, Hollywood you know, is, has a, a basically a publicity gravy train known as the junket. And when they, when they open a movie, 
you know, they'll buy out rooms at a hotel, fancy hotel, five-star like the Ritz Carlton, fly out journalists from all over the world, uh, you know, they'll bring in the star, the Brad Pitt or whoever it might be, and the director and maybe a, a supporting uh, actor. And, and what they'll do is they'll give everybody that they've flown out five minutes with that person to do an interview. They'll handle the video and everything, send them away with a tape so these guys can, but can go back and cut their segments. Well, it's totally paid for and financed by the movie studio, but there's no disclosure at all. So my, my, what I wonder is, sure, I see the FTC out there doing their thing with these guidelines, but are they really lawful and are they constitutional and will they hold up? Because if you were, um, you know, in, if you infringed or, or you, you were seen as violating and you were, you were brought to court, couldn't you just say, well, why am I being held to these unfair standards? Look at all these other areas where there's no disclosure at all and nothing's done about it. Why should new media be treated differently? There's a, so many people I've talked with with these same issues. First thing, is the FTC a governing body? They are not. Um, they don't make the law. They basically serve as an advisory to the people in Congress who will take their recommendations and thus allow them to provide enforcement on those recommendations. The, but, but, of course, they... Uh, they have always had to deal with the issue, and I think, I think it's a very fair question of, do they treat people in new media fairly? And I would say no. I mean, you discuss disclosure with celebrities, huge thing. No disclosure with entertainment media. I know this from working in traditional media, having worked at newspapers, worked in talk radio. I know how the game is played. I know how we know how some things are just so incredibly phony behind the scenes and made it sound like it's an exclusive interview, but this is what keeps the wheels turning. I mean, we, we can still see that on so many, so many other levels that, aren't, um, that are behind the scenes also with traditional media, too. You mentioned also with newspapers. I happened to be at a newspaper where they were doing their own editorial content that was actually paid for as well. I was even in the room when the advertising, I'm sorry, when the, the editorial director, or basically the editorial manager, was already going to call from the advertiser saying, we just got this deal for six slots. Can we do a story on them? I mean, this has always been around. Uh, but when you talk about all these things and you say, does the FTC go after these people, especially those who have the big bucks and who have a big audience? And I would say no. What I've dealt with, and I've interviewed people in the search space, in the social media space, online video space, who are in uh, the strictly digital and don't have those type of large pockets is they are upset. They're pissed. They're pissed that when they when on television, how quick is that little disclaimer that you can't possibly read on a commercial? What's that like for three seconds? You think you can get away with that in new media? Absolutely not. What about in radio when all of a sudden the the people who are the talk show hosts that is their whole job is based on trust or entertainment, if you want to call it that, is now immediately switching to, oh, I love this certain mattress. You know what? I use it all the time. Oh, they didn't disclose they got paid for it. Um, in their minds, I'll just say, well, we're just entertainment, and so people don't need to trust us that much. But this is the double standard, and this is why so many people in media say, this is unfair. You're not going after these people. Uh, if somebody is like Kim Kardashian or Scarlett Johansson is talking about who they're wearing, and, they're, and they make a tweet on it, should that be disclosed that that's something that they're getting some kind of compensation for? Perhaps, but perhaps not, because if they don't get to keep the dress, which they don't, Oh, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. They don't get to keep the jewels. They get to keep the dress. If they get to keep the dress in return, and then they're tweeting something about it, then it comes to a question of, is that an endorsement? An endorsement can mean a compliment. It, and that is the debate that attorneys will have over is simply 
announcing something, simply mentioning something, a reason to disclose. Here's a really good example related to that that can apply to so many places. Content marketing. If somebody pays for a post, if you pay a freelancer for a post, and they're writing on an issue that's important to your company and your company happens to be doing a conference on, well, is that the kind of thing they need to disclose that they were paid to do that because if they're listed as being with another company? Um, that's, that's questionable. Now, that's not an endorsement necessarily, but if they say, hey, you really should check out this conference, then that could be, that's an endorsement, and that would need to be disclosed. And there are these, these gray areas that lawyers will, will, ha- will, will debate over, you know, depending what, what side you're on. But I deal with it all the time. I deal with it in, in, uh, in places that I've, that I've blogged for where I will know someone on the board of directors has a direct material relationship with one of the people that they're promoting the videos on and saying, oh, you know, this, this video, it's great and whatever, and they don't disclose that, oh, they're a, they're a silent partner. They have an investment in it. Of course an audience would want to know, but in their minds, they're now suddenly a journalist. And uh, that's separate from their business relationships. But whenever you ever heard of a journalist who is doing all this entrepreneurial stuff at the same time and feels that they have no need to disclose that who they're having featured is somebody who they're doing business with. But these, these, are, these are ethical debates that go on right now. I mean, the FTC is another issue of what they do and don't allow and when they have fairness, but I can agree with you, it's not fair. I mean, wasn't Mike Arrington fired over this? Mike Arrington, you know, I really don't know if Mike Arrington was fired over this, but I know some people have been. And I know that companies like Nike who will have English footballers and then not disclose that um, those, um, those footballers were paid to be doing endorsements and have their whole Nike account shut down. I, I just find that it's the people below. If, if, if Mike is somebody who, and I honestly don't know if he was fired for this, maybe he was, this is something Ryan's can Google, but the people who should be hurt aren't hurt. And I think the examples that the FTC makes aren't the examples that they really should go after. And because I can say is the FTC is a limited body. <laughs> and sometimes the wins that they want are small wins rather than getting a harder problem that I think a lot more people who want to do the right thing could get on board with. We're talking to Grant Kroll. He's a videologist and an SEO expert. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the updates, the dot-com disclosure guidelines from the FTC. So we're at a point where 91% of adults use social media of employers think there's a benefit to using social media at work. Half of all companies globally have had to discipline an employee for the misuse of social media at work, and still less than a third provide any sort of training at all. If you're ready to train the enterprise, um, Comply Socially has 80 hours of online social media training courseware. Uh, that's available for license. It is uh, the most cost-effective way to train a large employee population, and you can do it anytime, anywhere, on any device. If you're interested in becoming a reseller, hop on over to complysocially.com, visit the reseller link on the bottom of the page, and fill out the form. We'd love to talk to you. Or if you're at a company where you're in charge of social media and you'd like to get the rest of the folks retweeting, liking, and commenting on your stuff, we have a solution for you to scale engagement in the workplace and manage risk at complysocially.com. Check us out. So Grant, I know you have done a lot of thinking and studying and writing about the FTC social media disclosure guidelines. 
Um, and, and, and now I know recently you mentioned to me that they've published an update and they're going to do another update. Tell us, if you would, about the update they just did and what some of the new guidelines are. All right. The FTC recently did an update to their dot-com disclosures and digital advertising. It, co- you know, it covers social media, it covers the web, it covers mobile, and it does to some degree cover video. Basically, it's supposed to cover what, what will fall in the umbrella of digital advertising, which is a nice way of saying anything, that, a lot of stuff that you do online where there is some type of business model behind it, and that business model happens involve advertising slash marketing. And a lot of us in social media will call it content marketing. Now, what, what's important with this is, is that it, it fall, there was a 2000 version that was way outdated. And there was also a call for papers from people in the industry on how they could update their dot-com disclosure guidelines. And basically talking about disclosure is for the purposes of what it will provide necessary information uh, that would be clear and conspicuous to the intended audience meaning that it's not unavoidable to consumers that they would have to see it and have it done in a way that uh, basically does not create consumer confusion or causes a reasonable size of that audience to feel like they were deceived. So what they did is they took papers. I was the one who submitted a paper, my own paper called Pay Me to Trust You, uh, and it was pretty much a guide for that I'd written specifically for online marketers and social media types on understanding you know, what you need to know. It's called Pay Me to Trust You, an online marketer's guide to the FTC, guides for disclosures, endorsements, and social media. You could Google Pay Me to Trust and you'll see that report and you'll see that on blogworld.com. And I thought this needs to be explained in layman's terms. Uh, but I also thought there's a lot of problems with this. And I submitted a paper on what, and this report says what needs to be updated. Well, they, t- they took some of my advice and they took some other people's advice and you know, did their own thing. They, they had a little, little conference uh, that they invited people in their Washington, D.C. office, and then they came out with this report earlier this year. And the report wasn't updated to include the new media technologies. Now, what it, it doesn't go into uh, an update on the endorsement guidelines, but it basically covers in uh, how to disclose things, not when to disclose. And I know that sounds a bit confusing. What they can say is they're taking a much harder st- stance than they did with their 2000 version, and likely they're going to be going after a lot more companies. That, that's, that's my own educated guess there. But what this was supposed to show is that any company today that is doing content marketing, that is doing any kind of endorsements where there's a material relationship, and material doesn't necessarily mean paid, it means something where something is exchanged, goods or services, uh, sometimes even business clout, is for this type of endorsements, you need to have policies in place, you need to monitor them and you need to have accountability. That just means is that you need to make your disclosure of these material relationships easily accessible, easily understandable to an audience, not just on your you know, a desktop computer or laptop, but also on a mobile device. Also, if it's video, that's something that needs to be disclosed in the content of the video because an annotation or an overlay ad may not show that or may not because also people might not see that in the description on a YouTube page. So it got more complicated just by the nature of trying to deal all these things and having so many what-ifs. But it is, it is a good document for anyone who is, doing, who is in social media and who is doing content marketing to understand. This is about risk management. That's why I took it upon myself to speak at Social Media Week in Chicago on a guide for bloggers, a guide for social media people, and also for me to reach out to people in, in the video industry and say, you need to follow this. 
you need to understand you know wh where do you do it what's the proximity and if you're and if you're not clear here's the places to go and talk to but what is absolutely a guarantee is anyone it doesn't matter if it's the mom and pop to the enterprises you need to have a guidelines in place you need to make sure your employees understand that and you need to make sure that it's being monitored and that if somebody is breaking law, that you're, you're able to show that you're doing something about it. So I definitely encourage people to, to check out the report, Pay Me to Trust You. It's at um, blogworld.com. And uh, just simply Google Pay Me to Trust You. That's what I like is nobody came up with Pay Me to Trust You. <laughs> so, but I think that pretty much kind of sums things up of where, where things are going with content marketing, but also this is just the most basic guide I could make of every term and what you ne everyone needs to know. And I thought from there, the next thing can be to have a real debate about what should be done and what shouldn't be done. So there? I may have lost you. Excellent. And we'll have a link to the white paper in the show notes for the podcast as well. Let me ask you something, Grant. What about mobile? When it comes to mobile, are there any unique disclosure requirements that we need to consider that we haven't? Mobile is quite the beast. And I say that after um, I, I worked for six months at Sears Holdings, uh, Sears and Kmart, as an online video strategist, and I got to work with a mobile team. And mobile, the big challenge is there are so many different devices you have there. And you'll hear the term responsive design, which is one way of how people are supposed to d design for based on the type, of, uh, the type of mobile device you're on, whether it's a tablet, whether it's a smartphone. Mo people who are in mobile absolutely need to read the, the FTC's 2013.com disclosures in digital advertising. The, the FTC was good this time about giving examples of how a disclosure would show. Now, what the FTC came down hard on was saying, if you can't make a clear and conspicuous disclosure in what would be considered an advertisement, then you can't do the ad. Now, that's, that's pretty tough out there. The question comes down to is, you can, if you, do you have to scroll all the way down? Of course, the FTC is going to say that disclosure, best to have it up top. Well, that doesn't always work that well, or that it's very clear with what people are, if basically there's an offer, an ad, or say an endorsement there, that you have to find a way of making the experience simple enough that it's comprehensible. There's an argument amongst um, people who say it's, too, um, those in the social media industry say it's too rigid, or those in mobile say it's too rigid, and at least allow a disclosure link when people can get, can find out all about the nature of that without interfering with the experience, because you have such a limited canvas to work with. So it does try to show examples. I mean, endorsements is just one area over the type of disclosure. Sometimes it is, hey, free thing, and then I want to make sure that, you know, by before you sign up for this, that you agree to be part of email list or, you know, credit card or whatever. That's another type of disclosure. But with endorsements is sometimes what you'll see on a desktop or laptop is what if it's HTML5 versus Flash? You have to make sure that it will show up on what the device can handle in terms of the, the display of that technology. So it is in, it, sometimes it can be really difficult for certain types of advertising. What's the solution? Test out your ads on these platforms before you run through it if it's very important for you not to get either fined by the FTC or deal with some type of, thing, um, some type of issue that will get your, your campaign stopped. What about the issue of proximity and placement for the disclosure? Um, where does that disclosure have to be made in relationship to the actual 
piece of content that you've shared that is endorsed or for which there is a material connection between the person who shared it and an employer or an organization? Well, what the FTC will say is they'd love to say at the beginning, just like with a tweet, they'll say hashtag ad, ad or hashtag spawn, S-P-O-N, is ideal. If it was a video, then they'd want that to be in the beginning of the video or at least when the, claim, when the endorsement is being made. Uh, that gets a little tricky because what if, the, what if the content is sponsored content, just like we remember in the 1950s with Ford or Chevrolet sponsor entire shows, even though ironically that's the way it's going. But that kind of thing the FTC would likely argue and saying that should be at the very beginning before you're watching the video and done in a way where it's in the content itself, not an overlay ad, not, uh, not something in the description, uh, so that wherever it is shared, wherever it's embedded, it will always be there. With articles, and this is, this is a debate I've had with a, lot, with, with a number of publishers, and they've, they've been sometimes you know, really in-depth um, really in arguments, is they like to do their disclosure at the bottom or just include a link and say, you know, click here for disclosure, or say, learn more about someone's relationship here, but it doesn't tell you really much, even if it takes people to the opposite page. So the, it, the ideal thing to do is have the disclosure, I would say, after the first paragraph, of, if it's a blog post, because we have to get context here, but if it's a blog post, is making sure people can always see that on a standard device above the fold, so without scrolling. Um, that is, that's, I think, the best combination. You're certainly following the FTC guidelines, but you're also following the court of public opinion to what most people are not going to have any issue with. I mean, if anything, I think it's going to build people's trust in saying that you take this seriously on letting people know what has a paid relationship for. So always have that in, I, I say for a blog post, in a box before you get to the meat. Like have an intro, then have a, bo- a disclosure box that is text, you know, not some funky, silly graphic or a link because you think you're being cute, and then you get to the meat. Um, that is my tip really for anyone doing it is don't make people have to work for it so that they have to see that if they're going to enjoy the rest of the article or watch a video or even listen to a podcast. How prominent does that disclosure need to be? Like, how much space does it need to take up? How big does it need to be? Is there, are there any parameters around prominence? Prominence is a word that I remember from the days of my early SEO, <laughs> dealing with keywords and how prominent you want to make it. And we talk about proximity. Uh, of course, we'll talk about an H1 tag. The same, the same thing applies now, but in terms of transparency. Uh, prominence is can mean a lot of things. And again, it depends on the, the user experience. That's where it gets complicated. But I could say, for example, prominence, if it was a video, then I would say have it at the beginning of the video and have it for a certain, a certain duration to ensure adequate comprehension. Uh, sometimes, it, like if it's, like say for a podcast, all right, if you were doing something here and this podcast was sponsored by a company, say, say I paid you to do this podcast for me and that's became sponsored content, then I would say do it at the beginning and sometimes it's always good to, I mean, these are just examples, but you want, you can almost make it creative. It doesn't have to be a dull experience of saying, you know, the following is sponsored content and, uh, you know, if you learn more about this, check our page here, but I think it's good to also say following content sponsored by Grant Kroll. Now, in this case, uh, we have no such sponsored content, and sometimes it's a, it's a reverse disclosure because there are some people who are cynical enough to say, oh, you, if you're endorsing someone, you just got paid to do that. And you have to, revert, you have to reverse that cynicism sometimes whenever you're endorsing people to say, hey, you know, I wasn't paid to do this. It was a free thing. You know, it's, it's unfortunate things get that cynical. But back to the subject of prominence is that's just one example of where you want to make sure it isn't missed. And this goes back to clear and conspicuous. 
clear and conspicuous is the definition the FTC gives. We say the word prominence. That can include proximity. That can include appearance. That can include duration. If it's an audio, that includes volume. Uh, sometimes it also includes contrast. I mean, I worked as a graphic designer for a number of years, and I know how important it is you want to make things stand out. Take, for example, do you think the, do you think the sponsored content on go to news.yahoo.com, you think those things are really prominent? Now, they might say, well, it's light yellow and there's a light text that says ad or sponsored content. I would say no. Uh, I would say they're trying to – they'll say that, but I, I go, then goes right back to newspaper editors who would say, oh, well, that really small text that says advertorial, yeah, that's good enough, but you and I know that's not the case. You know, I'm looking at it right now. I think it's pretty good. It's, it's, it's yellowed out and it says ad choices. Isn't that interesting, though? Because what you and I think, we have our own opinions, and I'm saying I'm more of a purist than the average person, uh, but at the same time, I don't know what device you're looking at it on. My screen may have it lighter. I have a 30-inch LCD screen that I know doesn't necessarily provide the sharpest contrast of what you might see. If I saw this on a mobile device, that might stand out more. Mm. So it gets more complicated based on what you can say is empirical evidence. And you say a clear majority of the people's experience and not a minimal minority. I may fall in the minimal minority. At the same time, if you were looking at that on my screen, you might say, yeah, that isn't conspicuous. It needs to be. At the same time, it's like when your wife misses that ad, and I do. Why? Because... I've been in the search industry for so long, I know to, know to expect that. But does the majority of people not know that, a clear majority of the people? And would they feel like they were deceived, and would they care? Uh, we don't know. We're talking to Grant Crowell. He is a videologist, SEO expert, social media compliance and trainer. Uh, and I want to thank you, Grant, for taking the time to do this podcast. Thanks a lot, Eric. It's been infotaining. I hope we've educated your audience. And uh, feel free to let them know that they can, they can always check me out at grantcroll.com. And if they have a, have a video compliance question, always easy to email me at me, M-E, at grantcroll.com. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.